0: This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to atomicbooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds.
1: There's something combative about it, Um, but for the right kind of listener, I think that also makes it very fun. That's the kind of listening experience that I tend to enjoy the most. And um, when you're actively challenging and rewarding people that turns It kind of, again, for the right kind of listener, forces it to become an active listening experience where you're kind of forced to treat it more like a book than like wallpaper.
0: This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. One, Abstract, fragmented, forward-thinking, and consistently compelling, Brooklyn-based band Water From Your Eyes has garnered a great deal of attention since releasing their Matador Records debut, Everyone's Crushed, in May of 2023. The band, which is made up of Rachel Brown and Nate Amos, has deep and far-reaching influences that belie their oft-assigned description as an indie rock band. As you'll hear in our conversation with Amos, The band has been inspired by adventurous and ahead-of-their-time sounds, which can be heard in their work as well. The first song Amos chose as being formative for him was See You Don't Bump His Head by Scott Walker. Plucking feathers from a swan song, spring might gently press its thumbs against your eye. While plucking feathers from a
1: swan song, a cobweb melts within a wound. So, I believe the first one on the list was See You Don't Bump His Head um, by Scott Walker. Um, and that. More so than that song in particular, that song was just my gateway into late period Scott Walker, which had an enormous impact, um, I guess on the way I thought about music, uh, and, um, construction of song, of songs, and the purpose of songs, um, I was always inter I was always very driven by harmony and composition rather than lyrics early on. And he was the first artist that really um got me thinking about music specifically as a mechanism for highlighting the lyrics and having the words be a primary thing, Um, especially in his later period work. It feels like every sound, every arrangement choice and inclusion of a melodic element is specifically there to emphasize something in the lyric. which I feel like is something that, you know, is obviously not like unheard of in modern music, but it's something that drives his work in a way that it doesn't necessarily drive a lot of other music that has come out in the 2000s. And that song in particular... Uh, it's from an album called Bish Bosh, which is kind of, for lack of a better term, probably the funniest album he made. Uh, and because um, a lot of his later period work is almost like excruciatingly dark and heavy, and that song is—it's certainly like. Spooky, but it also is really fun. And I think a lot of that comes from the sounds themselves, which are like almost zany, uh, but also from this implication that he, as you know, someone who I believe was in his sixties at that point was playing with all these more modern sounds. There's something very like glitchy industrial about it and there's the whole kind of metal guitar breakdown that comes in just, I believe once in the whole song. and while it is kind of like this heady esoteric piece of work, it's also something that he's clearly having fun with. Um, and in terms of particularly the songs on that album, it's, you know, it's the first song on that album. It's a little bit easier to digest. I guess it's not um, it's kind of unique in his later period albums in which it's pretty, it's a sh- pretty short song. I think it's like two and a half, three minutes long. Um, And even though, you know, like I said, I chose it cause that was kind of my introduction to what his later work was stylistically. I think still, if I were trying to, introduce his later period work to someone that would probably still be depending on the person. There's a good chance that that would be what I would kick them off with because it's kind of like a bite-sized representation of what he was up to. So that song I really chose to be representative of his later work as a whole.
2: What what would this have been sort of a, a left turn from, I guess, at the time? Like, what would you have been listening to? Or, you know, were you already playing music at this point?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what I would have been listening to before at the time. I think I first got into his later period work probably when I was in, when I was like 23, 24, something like that. Um And I was familiar with some of his other work. Actually, the first time I ever heard his music was um, the song The Electrician being used in the opening scene of Bronson, Um which I maintain is one of the best uses of a full song in the opening sequence of a, a movie. And it's like, and it, uh, you know, again, it. that's something that captures the humor in his work, which I think if you listen to it, looking for that, it's clear that there is a comedic element to his work. But... I don't know so much that people approach his work looking for that specifically. And it depends on your sense of humor, because I have kind of a dark sense of humor. But if you don't, most of his work probably just comes across as horrifying. Um, But then the album with See You Don't Bump His Head, it's a little more out in the open. There's one song that's largely kind of like or there's a whole section of a song, which is essentially like a jester, just roasting people and he has all these one-liners and there's another one that has a whole section of like fart sounds. So it's kind of hard to hear that, um, without appreciating a certain, you know, presence of humor. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think he it was definitely at the time that I found it, it was definitely so sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, some of the strangest music I had heard. I mean, and his music, you know, maintains that just because he is such a unique voice in um you know 21st century music and earlier on sort of throughout his whole career um and i think when i was into him or when i first got into him it was a big shift away from guitar focused music uh for me uh, and um really made me think about how to place more of an emphasis on the song as a whole rather than, you know, a combination of individually interesting performances, not that his songs aren't that, the individual elements are fascinating, but they all work together. Every individual element kind of takes a backseat to his voice and the lyric and the overall feel of the song. So there's no real instrumental spotlight. The instrumental is just perfectly honed to make the song work for what it is. So I think that would probably be the main shift. I think that had a big Impact on the way that I would put together music moving forward.
2: Um, I think maybe his um, his work and his career. Um, When you pick this song and just thinking about Scott Walker, I mean, you know, he was at one point a teen idol, right? You know, and he had this long career where he had a more traditional sort of pop singer um, career. And then he kind of, you know, moved away from all that and I guess rejected all that. I mean, by the time he was not so famous here as he was in europe and by the time i'd heard of him he was the tilt guy and he was you know it's like i only knew that stuff and found out about all of his more uh, kind of straight ahead stuff later um but it kind of strikes me especially listening um to um, um your band that you can do a lot of things with dissonance, and you can do a lot of things with sort of darker sounds and not necessarily have to um, reject the idea or label of pop music. And maybe he didn't ultimately. I, I have read some interviews with him, um, and you know, I don't think he spent a lot of time talking about things like that. Uh, but I'm curious about how you think about that or approach that because clearly you're not um, you know you're 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 doing a lot of interesting things with the music that you make but you're also doing it in this context where you know you're on tour you know you're you're doing a lot of kind of traditional band things um, and I'm kind of wondering how you navigate that I mean I think, for me,
1: it's that I have an equal amount of love for more experimental music and pop music and I kind of constantly find myself torn between on which of those two things I would like to place the focus. Um, And I think really the the balance of dissonance and pop in our music is kind of the result of not really being able to choose between those two things and just finding a way to make it work that feels feels natural, Um, which kind of, you know, scratches both of those itches for me, but then also has the fun side effect being like, okay, so we're going to sneak all this truly strange content into this kind of pop format. So you know, not everybody, but a lot of the people who might hear our music might hear some you know, experimental content that they might not be exposed to otherwise. So it's kind of turned into this Trojan horse thing where it's just like, okay, like if the pop elements can engage people and allow them to let it in, how far can we push, you know, any you know, general dissonance are also like microtonal content and things that would really, you know, allow the teeth to sink in after they've opened the door. Um, So it feels like a little bit like mischievous almost sometimes, because it's definitely like poking. And sometimes it's, you know, there are, certain songs that are definitely more extreme than others. Um, But I don't think that was ever really an intentional choice that got made, where it's just like, this is like what we're going to do. It really was just a result of being indecisive over a long period of time and allowing that to Yield some sort of eventual result, I guess, a compromise.
0: The second piece of music Amos chose as essential to forming his sensibilities was Democritus Laughing by Jute Geit.
1: So, again, this is, like, a piece that I kind of chose largely to be representative of his work as a whole. Um, and in a tangible way, I can't think of another musician that has had a greater impact on, um or I guess has driven me to try new compositional techniques so much. Um, I think um, his work was really my introduction, or I guess, so one of the cool things about his music or the way that he releases music is that he releases very detailed notes about how certain songs are put together and um, and also references composers that inspired him and uh, he was the first person that I was aware of to heavily employ serialism and microtonalism and conflicting um, tempos um, in music. And I lived in Chicago for a long time and there's like a big emphasis on math rock there. So I've, you know, been aware of odd time signatures for a long time and i feel like that's very much at this point part of you know a lot of technical rock pop music um but really um reading jukeite's notes about i mean first and foremost i just love his Music, I recognize that it's not for everyone. Um, but there's this really unique payoff that I find in a lot of his work and this almost calm, it. and it's interesting, you know, because he has his more ambient work and his more chaotic like black metal work and um as you adapt to the more chaotic work it almost becomes like ambient music just because of the density of it like i've fallen asleep listening to, listening to his music in headphones um and there's something very calming about it but i guess beyond the fact that i just i I really do think you know, like like Scott Walker, I think he's someone that's totally uncompromising to his own vision, which I find to be very inspiring and worthy of respect um, but beyond that, reading about his composition process was. The first thing that actually made me begin to explore serialism and microtonalism in my own work, which has become a a big part of what I do in general and a kind of like ever growing part of the process for Water from Your Eyes. Um, And uh, it's. the way we go about it is slightly different i know he will develop a series uh using like a 24-sided die that he'll actually roll i don't have one of those so i tend to use random number generators on random.org and um wait for one to feel Interesting, and I'm not sure what software he uses or anything. I kind of had to find my own ways to to uh, hack the creation of you know microtonal content on my own. Um, he doesn't really give technical information like that. More just overall, you know, this is the series that was used in this song and it was in quarter tone scale etc um and he was also how I heard about Conlan caro who's a composer yeah for player piano who would have I can't remember what the piece is called but there's one particular piece where it's the same motif on um, um you know, in the lower register and the upper register. And one starts at a really slow tempo, one starts at a really high tempo, and the higher tempo slowly eases and slows down while the slower tempo gradually progresses in speed. So there's only one moment in the very center of the composition where they're actually linked up. That I found to be um, opened up a lot of possibilities, and in subtle ways, it's something that I'll use in water from your eyes. Never in a way where it's the focus, because you know, I said it's like you said, it's still pop music ultimately. So you can only like really push it to far um, but again that goes back to I guess what I was saying about you guys where you, you calibrate to these certain discomforts that make moments of resolution incredibly gratifying um, and that's something that I feel like I have grown to, um, strive for more and more, you know, you kind of like, you know, put people through these trials and then give them their reward. Again, it's kind of like mischievous, it's, um... There's something combative about it, um, but for the right kind of listener, I think that also makes it very fun. That's the kind of listening experience that I tend to enjoy the most. And um, when you're actively challenging and rewarding people, that turns, it kind of, again, for the right kind of listener, forces it to become an active listening experience where you're kind of forced to treat it more like a book than like wallpaper
0: Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st-century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS. A collection put together by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from the collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org, or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. Established in 1996, Royal Books is a seller of rare books and paper specializing in literature, cinema, music, and the arts. From Cassavetes to Ida Lupino, from New Wave to Warhol, you will find an ever-expanding selection of first editions, original film scripts, vintage photographs, posters, and 20th century Americana. Visit us online at royalbooks.com or visit our store on any weekday between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. The final piece of music Amos chose as being crucial to him was String Quartet No. 7 with Solemnity by Ben Johnston and performed by the Kepler Quartet.
1: I don't even really know where to start with this one. Um, I think this was a piece that I read about before I actually heard it. And I was kind of drawn to Ben Johnson's life story before I'd actually really heard any of his music. Because um, he was this, you know. Kind of like insane genius microtonal composer who um, you know, mentored under parch and you know, supposedly had this freaky sense of pitch and created all of these string quartets that were long thought completely impossible to play and um but were, you know, works of mathematical genius on paper Um, while at the same time he was had this deep interest in american folk music that also found his way into a lot of his work and i related to that because while you know my focus at this point is kind of on experimental pop. I grew up in a bluegrass household. I grew up playing bluegrass music, and my dad's still a bluegrass musician. Um so that balance was something I was attracted to before I'd ever even really heard his music. And I think one of the coolest examples of that is his arrangement of Amazing Grace. I can't remember which um string quartet number it is but that is like a brutally beautiful piece of work Um, but yeah so string quartet number seven part two with solemnity i approached it um expecting it to be more academic than anything else and was not ready for it to be probably what I think of as the most cosmic and beautiful piece of music I've ever heard. Uh, I kind of hold it above really anything else that I can think of Anytime I try to describe it to anybody. It doesn't really do it justice. You know, you could call it a work of, you know, mathematical genius on paper. Not that I'm really am qualified to say that. That's just what I've been told. You can look at it as a technical achievement, the fact that the Kepler Quartet was under his direction, eventually able to perform this piece that people said was unperformable for decades. You know, they had to retrain the way they heard pitch, because I think this is the piece of his where, you know, it's all based on um, sympathetic vibration in the strings, Um, and ultimately results in... I read somewhere that in this particular piece, each half step, is divided into a thousand possible notes which is just like an insane level of microtonalism that you know way beyond me um but brilliance on paper aside um the the feat of pulling off its performance aside it just is ultimately beautiful and that's not what I was expecting when I you know I think it was probably six or seven years ago when I listened to it for the first time and um, it set me off on this kick I really I listened to nothing but his string quartets for a long period of time and this one You know, it could be because it was just the first one that really got me that it remains my favorite. But I also just, you know, for whatever reason, it's my favorite. Um, And there are moments in it that just, to me, sound like the universe breathing in this way that is simultaneously ancient and so far into the future you know that it's impossible to see um and then you know the voicing of it the fact that it's a string quartet piece also makes it kind of timeless because you know there's I think there's a reason that the string quartet hasn't really been, altered you know it's kind of like been perfected as well and in my mind it's the most effective way or medium within music to communicate human emotion without the use of a human voice um But yeah, so that song really is, it's just kind of like this impossible benchmark. I think I will always, to a certain extent, be trying to make something that could potentially make someone feel the way that that made me feel and... It's kind of nice because it's like an impossible goal. Like, I'll never have to come up with a new one because I'll never be able to do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that piece is, if I really had to choose, that's probably my favorite piece of music that exists. Um, which, again, is kind of funny to me because reading about it as this crazy technical, like the hardest thing to play ever. It's like all feels so like gimmicky when you talk about it, but it's ultimately just like God wrenchingly gorgeous in this incredibly primal way. And I think a lot of that has to do with the microtonalism and abandoning conventional pitch for no relationships that have more to do with physics than anything else. You know, when you hear these really discordant moments that are, I guess, vibrationally in sync with each other, there's something almost animalistic about it. It sounds like it's like something created in nature rather than from a musical instrument. And that as a result, kind of gets removed from any context of modernity and turns it into a much more, I guess I keep saying primal, it's like a primal thing. Um, It's like I feel that song in my DNA somehow.
0: This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.